listening to the Deep in the Tank podcast with Chris Kidwell and Sam Glover. Before we get started, uh, we do realize that I don't sound as good today. Uh, not that I'm sick or anything, but I'm on a different microphone, and so we're, we're aware of that. This should be just a uh, one-episode sort of blip on the radar, and so we, we understand that the audio quality might not be quite what you're used to today. We apologize for that, and we will fix that for next time. Sam, uh, we were asked by one of our listeners to, at some point, uh, potentially cover critical race theory. And so we're going to go ahead and take the opportunity to do that today. Uh, I think that'll be helpful, especially in light of everything that's been going on uh, nationwide, um, you know, in response to the uh, murder of George Floyd, uh, in response to some of the protests, uh, some of the things associated with uh, Black Lives Matter. And so we're going to go ahead and take a look today at critical race theory. And why don't you go ahead and start us off by telling us what that actually is? Well, um, a part of me is tempted to just go right out the gate with what I really think about it. But uh, to describe it more more neutrally, critical theory can refer to a variety of disciplines and even interdisciplinary uh, fields of study that all have their academic roots in what is called the Frankfurt School, which was uh, a product of the 1930s of German scholarship migrating over to the United States. Uh, And I don't say that as uh, some sort of boogeyman or anything like that. That's just how a lot of things happen. Uh, You have a lot of... uh, Continental European scholarship always gradually makes its way over to the states, and critical theory is no different. Uh, the difficulty is that uh, critical theory can refer to actual just critical theory, which is the Frankfurt School's Marxist sort of ideology that includes guys like, uh, uh, I'm going to try to pronounce this because this is a very uh, Germanic name. Georgi Lukacs, Max Horkheimer, Theodore Adorno, and Herbert Marcus. Or it can also refer to uh, other similar but different critical social theories, uh, such as critical race theory, intersectionality, disability studies, and the like. And that last line especially is from... uh, New Discourses, a site run by one James Lindsay. He's become very uh, a prominent opponent of critical theory, but he's very useful because he's actually done a great deal of work in uh, the field. But functionally, critical theory, at its core, takes the ideas of Marx, especially his emphasis on the divisions between the classes. In Marx, it was the proletariat, the working class, versus the bourgeois, the the wealthy, the people that didn't have to work for a living, that sort of thing. And there was always going to be this strife between the working class and the non-working class, the haves and the have-nots, if you will. And for Marx, revolution was inevitable and he actually calls for it if my memory serves 
at the end of uh, the Communist Manifesto. He calls for the proletariat to rise up, and he asks the question, what have you to lose except your chains? Now, and I don't bring up Marx to try to demonize critical theory. I, I have my own opinions about it that we'll get into, but just because that, that is part of its intellectual ancestry. Uh, in the same way that Christianity, in many respects, intellectually moves out of Judaism, critical theory moves out of uh, Marxism. And especially the idea of the, of the strife between the classes, uh, that is the main import. There is this idea of oppressor and oppressed. And if you are in the oppressor class, it is not about what you have done. It is about the class that you belong to. And so there will always be this strife between the classes that cannot be resolved except by the inverting of the dynamics. And that is especially concerning because the inverting of the dynamics, we've seen what that looks like. And that goes into critical race theory, especially, well, because of the ideas of whiteness and blackness. And, uh, of course, you've heard terms like white privilege or that sort of thing. And that's kind of a weasel word, I think, even though it's two words. But um, not to get too far afield. The point being, if you are a part of the white class, it does not matter what you specifically have done. You still bear guilt and responsibility because you are a part of the oppressor class. And uh, because of the belonging to the black class, a person would have specific moral uh, deferences and responsibilities. This is why, uh, for instance, there's the popular notion that black people can't be racist. And we would hear that and think, well, that's ridiculous. Of course, black people can be racist because it is entirely possible for a black person to hold prejudices against someone on the basis of their race. But that's the problem. Critical theorists, intentionally or otherwise, use language that is conventional in ways that is unconventional. They take common language and turn it into jargon. And so for the critical race theorist, uh, racism is prejudice, yes, but also power to enact your prejudices on a systemic level. And so because in critical race theory, the, the black class does not have that systemic power they could perhaps be prejudiced, they cannot be racist because they do not have the power to enact their prejudices. Anyway, that that's all there's a that's a lot like drinking from a a water like a hydrant. There we go, that's the word. But uh that's some very base level stuff about critical theory and critical race theory especially. Yeah, and, and you were mentioning these inverted dynamics and you, you mentioned the terms classes. Uh, one, one of the ideas that frequently comes up in this discussion is the idea of a hierarchy. Uh, that is, when you talk about the, excuse me, the oppressor versus the oppressed, well, you just look at the hierarchy. Uh, that whites are at the top of the hierarchy. Uh, if we look at race as specific, 
uh, as the specific qualifier, because as you mentioned, there are other facets of critical theory, and we'll talk about intersectionality in just a minute. Um, but you know, whites are at the top of the hierarchy, so they cannot be uh, they cannot be the oppressed uh, according to critical race theory. And you go a little bit lower on the hierarchy, you get to another race that can be oppressed by whites, but may uh, may oppress others. And and I'm not exactly sure where the hierarchy uh, stands today, if you will. Um, but the idea that just because you are a part of a particular class, a particular, in this case, race, um, means that uh, you are either oppressed or you are the oppressor based purely on your uh, identity. Um, now, intersectionality comes in and modifies that a bit where it adds, uh, it may add sexual orientation, it may add gender. Uh, and so, for example, a, uh, a, a lesbian uh, black person uh, would be very much uh, toward the bottom of that hierarchy and so could almost never oppress anyone, let alone a straight white male. Um, but that, that's sort of how you see these things arranged is, is just purely by class and viewing people almost entirely through the lens of whatever class uh, they find themselves in. Um, and, and then not just simply viewing people through that lens, uh, but also uh, creating policy uh, through that lens, right? Uh, that This is where, and we'll talk about problems in just a moment, um, but this is, it, you know, we mention it as theory, but in, in reality, it's not simply theory uh, for its adherence. Um, that this is something that is put into, this is a theory that's put into practice is what I'm getting at. Um, right. You know, that, that it affects policy. Uh, at some point, we need to have the discussion, and, and we're not going to get to it right away, but some people uh, let this dominate their spiritual uh, perception. Uh, that is, they let, that, they let this theory dominate their reading of Scripture uh, and dominate, uh, therefore, uh, you know what what it means to sin what it means to have grace uh what the bible is really about uh what jesus really came here to do um and so it, it's not just simply viewing people through this uh through through this lens where you're identifying them primarily by their identity where you're viewing them uh, primarily because of whatever class or classes they might fall into. Uh, it, it's that you're changing uh, your policy uh, and you're changing your spiritual perception uh, based on this particular theory. Now, Sam, I'm going to ask you a very, I, I think what might be a very difficult question, given your, uh, given some of the things you've already hinted at here. Uh, but, but I think, it is at least helpful in some ways to ask it. Um, is there anything helpful, uh, either directly or indirectly, about critical theory uh, and perhaps specifically about critical race theory? Well, yes, actually, uh, there there are a few things, uh, and uh, I want to credit Neil Shinvey for uh, actually giving form to these strengths, but. Uh, 
The first one being that like critical theory recognizes that oppression is evil. I, I think it's more than fair to recognize where critical theory gets things right in the same way that it's fair to recognize when any ideology or any theory gets things right. So firstly, the recognition that oppression is evil. There are going to be differences between Christians and critical theorists on uh, on what oppression is and how it works and what exactly it entails. And yes, I hold that critical theory is incompatible with Christianity, but that's a different uh, question. But despite that difference, we can at least both at a baseline say oppression is wrong. We might have to talk about what is meant by oppression, but we can both agree. Uh, secondly, uh, the focus on groups as opposed to individuals, while I find it distasteful, it can have the benefit of giving insight, <clears throat> excuse me, it can give insight in how laws and institutions can promote sin and promote evil. Uh, for instance, uh, chattel slavery, uh, the Holocaust, apartheid, those things happened because institutions backed those things and made them happen. Now, I would specifically say governments made those things happen. But again, that's getting kind of far afield. The thing is, those things aren't just discrete acts of immorality. Because if one person owns a slave and the rest of society decides that slavery is wrong, then slavery stops at that person. If one person goes on a killing spree against Jews and the rest of society says, that's wrong, that killing spree stops with that person, and so on. But because these things were written into law, they were enforced by military or police might, etc., they were allowed to continue. And so institutions were able to dramatically amplify individual wickedness. And then finally, I would say, uh, again, kind of borrowing from Shinbi, hegemonic power, which is a major component of critical theory, it does exist and it affects us, um, especially uh, in talking about missiology. Uh, uh, there's this idea of culture and not letting our culture mix in with the truth claims we're making. Uh, a kind of a silly example is when you go to, uh, and, and this is anecdotal, but I've heard stories of uh, people that have gone on mission trips to uh, different island countries. And during the week, the islanders dress very casually. Uh, their dress is very different from ours. But come Sunday, they wear a suit and tie because that's what the missionaries wore on Sundays, and that's what they insisted that people wore. And you can look at that and say, okay, that, that was just a missionary that was overzealous for his cultural preferences, but that's exactly the thing. Because of his experience and because of the hegemony of his experience, he was imposing that on others. And it wasn't insidious necessarily, but that sort of thing can happen. And a great example of that is entertainment and advertising that those things shape us and what we consider as the norm and so the recognition of that is a right thing the problem with critical theory is that its premises are either fundamentally flawed or 
in my view, based on resentment more than anything, and that the goals are wrong and based on resentment. We'll uh, we'll we'll touch on that here in just a second because I think both of us uh, have quite a bit to say as far as how it's problematic, especially um, in in a society right now that is struggling uh, immensely uh, with conversations surrounding race. Um, you know, running to one extreme to try and make everything better, if you will, is not indeed going to do that. But before we get to that, I, I do want to point out, you know, you, you've uh, it, it, in touching on the insight aspect of this, while I certainly don't hold the critical theory wholesale or really in any stretch, I, I do find one particular aspect of it helpful, uh, and that is the recognition, like you said, of the fact that people are oppressed and the recognition that it has been generally true, not specifically true, not in every case, but generally true uh, that certain identities, at least in certain moments at, at, in time, um, have had specific issues they've had to deal with that other identities have not. Uh, and so what's a specific case of this? Well, we've seen it over the past uh, few years with regard to uh with regard to unarmed black millennials, uh, males generally uh, being killed and justice not necessarily being served, uh, be it by police officers as we've seen or by, um, or by, uh, you know, other individuals such as in the uh, Ahmed Arbery case, um, you know, and, and in many of these cases being done by white individuals and many of those cases being white men. Um, and, and someone might look at someone from our demographic, you know, we're both uh, white males, uh, millennial white males, might look at that and say, you know, why, uh, why is it that black individuals are a little bit more wary of law enforcement? Why is it that um, black individuals are a little bit more uh, wary of uh, where they are, a little bit more aware uh, of, you know, where they're driving, a little bit more aware of uh, where they find themselves. Um, and that's why, is because they, uh, or at least generally, uh, they have experiences uh, that seem to be tied to their identity that we do not. Um, now, I don't know if I would go so far as to call that uh, white privilege in the sense that uh, in the sense that many people mean it today uh, as if that's something um, that I greedily hold on to. But there, is, there should be at least a frank acknowledgement uh, that there are individuals who have experiences either directly or indirectly um, that are probably at the very least uh, tied to their identity that because I don't share in some specific aspect of that identity, uh, I do not. Um, you know, it, you know, we talk about this in light of race and we struggle with the discussion, but we don't really struggle with the uh, with the male female divide. What I'm getting at here is that uh, you know females uh, women have to be a lot more wary of where they are alone and a lot more cautious of where they spend. Uh, their time uh, alone, uh, you know, because of the threat of sexual violence, which is something that they perceive, something that they worry about to some extent, 
that I don't ever worry about uh, as a result of my identity. I'm not saying those two things are exactly the same, but I think there's a similar principle there. Um, and so I think uh, critical race theory uh, helps in that regard into giving, like you said, insight into giving people some understanding uh, that just because you haven't experienced it and just because you don't see it on a day to day basis doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Um, doesn't mean you get to hand wave it away as being something that's uh, something that is made up. Um, it, you know, that other people may have different experiences and those experiences might be tied to their identity. Uh, I, I think it is helpful at least to acknowledge that. Um, and to understand that those uh, those experiences are going to shape how they generally uh, uh, they view different facets of our society. Um, that's not to suggest that uh, it's going to be specifically true in every case, and it's not to suggest uh, it's not to suggest, and as we'll talk about in a second, uh, that public policy and that spiritual behavior. Uh, should be warped completely around the idea of identity as those who adhere to critical race theory are want to do. Uh, but it is to suggest that at least acknowledging um, that those experiences uh, do happen and that they can be tied to identity uh, is at least helpful. If nothing else, what I'm getting at here is that critical race theory uh, helps in at least uh, you know spurring on these discussions, um, helps in at least getting the conversation started it is not it should not be uh the conclusion it should not be uh where we end up but it should i think at least be a part of the discussion that way those of us that have maybe less insight into what another group has experienced can get some of that insight am i off base there uh have i taken that too far uh i wouldn't say too far but the emphasis on experience uh, does bring up a very important point because one of the core premises of critical theory is that lived experience is more important ultimately than objective evidence. Uh, for example, uh, Anderson and Collins in one of their works, uh, the idea that objectivity is best reached only through rational thought is a specifically Western and masculine way of thinking. And for them, uh, objectivity uh especially and that's another premise is that oppressor groups hide oppression under the guise of objectivity and that's very weaselly in my opinion but uh for the critical theorists story narrative personal testimony lived experience that sort of thing outweighs evidence and so people as a result from oppressed groups have end up under critical theory with special insight truth that is uh we'll say off limits to those outside the group and so if you're not a member of the oppressed group you you are lacking in specific knowledge that is necessary for you to really reach where you need to be does that sound familiar on any level chris mm -hmm. We studied it in, it comes up a lot in Johannine studies. It starts with a G and ends with Gnosticism. 
Uh, oh, this oh, I idea know. that. So, but, uh, yeah, that, I wasn't trying to be condescending to you. I apologize if I came off that way. But the idea yeah, that, uh, that the idea that there are these special categories of people who, for whatever reason, have special insight and they should be listened to. Set aside evidence, set aside reality, even, if necessary. Listen to the people who have special access to the archons, who have special insight into what Jesus really said. And a lot of that transfers over directly. This is part of why uh, one of uh, Vodi Bakum uh, for years has referred to this sort of thinking as it applies to race as ethnic Gnosticism. And I'm sure there are people that would be tempted to come at him about that, but if they're going to be consistent, they need to bear in mind, he's a black man. And if you're going to play by these rules, what he says overrides what you say if you're coming at him because he's black. He has that special experience, right? But that's also the thing. It's never consistently applied. And consistency, I know people kind of get tired of me harping on that, at least in my personal life, but just keep that in mind, that notion of consistency. So um, someone who's more conservative that I don't, I don't really care for at all uh, is, is Candace Owens. Um, I don't, I don't find her to be particularly helpful. I think she's, uh, rather inflammatory intentionally uh provocateur of sorts um but you know if we were to talk about the issue of consistency uh then her voice according to if if we want to just put it under the umbrella of critical theory for a moment would outweigh every single white voice um and every single male black voice because she is a black female um that her experience uh, is worth uh, listening to and worth um, uh, using to drive policy uh, more than uh, more than any of the voices I just mentioned. Uh, and this is someone who is uh, very, very, very conservative um, after having, you know, gone through uh, got experienced hate crimes. I mean, uh, part of the reason uh, she eventually became a conservative, she she ties that all the way back to some some horrible horrible harassment. Uh, I, I say hate crimes. I guess I don't know the full story to know if they were crimes, but you know, targeted uh, you know racial harassment. Um, uh, that uh, uh, that that's a part of her story, and so you don't even get to say what in her specific case, uh, you know, well, she hasn't truly, uh, experienced this. She's not truly, uh, black because of her, uh, you know, she hasn't truly experienced the black experience, which by the way, uh, throws critical race theory out the window by itself. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the fact that this is someone who most, uh, most proponents of critical race theory would probably disagree with on very nearly every single issue uh, you could bring up uh, and yet probably wouldn't apply their own 
philosophy, if you will, uh, consistently um, because of who she is and simply because they don't like what she's saying. Um, you know, and, and of course, there are other exceptions to that, uh, other exceptions to that, too. She's just um, probably the most obvious one, uh, certainly the most obvious uh you know, political commentator that I can think of in this regard. But there, I mean, there are others we could bring up, um, you know, and, and one of the one of the problems, and I think this is where we start. We've already started the discussion on problems here. Uh, but one of the problems, I think one of the biggest problems uh, with critical race theory and critical theory is that it takes uh, it takes a class of people, however you want to break them down. But for our purposes, we'll say race. It takes a class of people and it turns them into a monolith. Uh, that everyone in this race uh, would understand this particular experience because of their race. Um, and even if it were generally true uh, that people of a given race have uh, a particular experience, which um, maybe certain groups in certain periods of time in very specific contexts, you can make that argument. But even, even if it were true, uh, if you don't account for the specific individuals who may have other experiences, um, if you don't account for the exceptions, if you will, you've all of a sudden turned those people into a monolith in such a way that uh, you're discrediting the very voices that you're actually trying, that you claim you want to listen to. Um, you know, and, and as I mentioned, Candace Owens is one particular example of that. Uh, you know, there are many others. Uh, uh, there are many dissenting voices for all these things. Right. And one of my favorite examples is Eric July. Uh, lots of people don't know who he is. He is a uh, musician. He's the vocalist uh, for Backwards, uh, a, a political commentator that works for The Blaze. Uh, and he's an anarcho-capitalist. So, uh not exactly an overly popular political opinion, but it's always very interesting to follow him on Twitter. And uh, he's very uh, spicy, we'll say. So uh, for definitely PG-13 and above. So just for more sensitive uh, listeners and viewers, that sort of thing needs to be borne in mind. But it's so interesting to watch white people try to lecture him about critical theory and it's always so hilarious because they'll sit there and lecture him about like you need to shut up and let black people like tell their stories and things like that and he'll just post a video of himself in response saying like i'm black stop telling me what to do and they delete their accounts <laughs> yeah you know it, it's if you're if you're going to view the world through that lens, um, you are naturally going to have inconsistencies just because you're going to have discrepancies between what people in particular classes, even if you narrow it down uh, as specific as you can get, uh, uh, even if you narrow it down uh, by race, by sexual orientation, uh, by uh, by gender. Uh, by, you know, if you want to start cutting uh, cross sections into the timeline of history, uh, by when a person lived, uh, by, 
uh, where they lived in particular. I mean, you could start getting just individuals within very, uh, you know, very specific communities. Um, and you're going to get them disagreeing on things. Uh, you're going to get them disagreeing on some very fundamental things. Uh, and so when you start to turn people into a monolith, uh, you're going to run into these issues uh, in addition to the fact that you're, you're naturally going to discount voices uh, who disagree with you or disagree with whatever, uh, whatever you want them to say. Uh, that, that's sort of another uh, that's sort of another problem with critical race theory is um, it is almost always, and I mean almost always, used uh, to employ some type of particular agenda. Uh, Absolutely. When when things are good, if you will, uh, when things are calm with regard to, or I say calm, let me let me qualify that, say relatively calm with regard to. Uh, the discussion surrounding race relations. I'm not trying to discount, you know, terrible things that happen when we're not having the discussion, of course. Um, but when the discussion isn't in the public eye, um, you, you don't see this floated around as much. Um, you don't you don't see this idea of of uh, pushing uh, pushing for identity based discussions or identity-based politics or whatever it might be, uh, you don't see that pushed as much. But when there's a specific issue, uh, right now it has to do with law enforcement. A lot of it does. Um, we've seen, I, I saw one estimate, uh, one group estimate as high as 25 million people uh, participating in protests since the, uh, since the death of George Floyd. Um, you, you see this, uh, you see people using whatever situation has happened, a truly awful situation, an objectively terrible situation, um, and using that as the catalyst for this discussion um, because people are probably more receptive to it right now. Um, and, and that's, you know, if you're going to apply it consistently, then you need to have the discussion constantly. Uh, and that, that's something I just I don't see uh, even proponents of it other than people who have perhaps made their name uh, on the back of this particular theory uh, proponents of it um, not doing They're They're just they don't generally push it unless they've got a specific goal in mind. Whereas in reality, if you've if you've got this uh, if you've got this as your dominant philosophy, if this is what you genuinely believe, um, this should be the end goal, uh, not the means to an end. Right. And you mentioned agendas. It's no mistake uh, that Black Lives Matter. And by the way, there is some ambiguity on this for people. Uh, there are people that say, well, Black Lives Matter just means exactly what it says. And for a lot of people, that's true especially because just saying Black Lives Matter doesn't automatically make one a member of the Black Lives Matter organization any more so than happening to pick up a Quran and read it would turn me into a Muslim just magically. But I'm going even... to interject here just briefly. Um, the Christian Chronicle put out an excellent article this week uh, basically saying, you know, here's why Christians react differently to Black Lives Matter uh, and talked about the the difference between 
the simple phrase itself uh, versus the association that some often white people have with the uh, have with the organization that bears the same name. Uh, I, it is it is it's written by Bobby Ross, who's the editor of the Chronicle. Uh, highly, highly recommend uh, going and giving it a read if you can. Right. And and I've even in dialogue, I've seen people deny that there is an organization that exists called Black Lives Matter. And when I sent them the link to their website, they got very upset at me. I, I, and I can't imagine why. But um, anyway, this is an excerpt from their What We Believe section. Uh, we are guided by the fact that all Black Lives Matter, regardless of actual or perceived sexual identity, gender identity, gender expression, economic status, ability, disability, religious beliefs or disbeliefs, immigration status or location. We make space for transgender brothers and sisters to participate and lead. We are self-reflexive and do the work required to dismantle cisgender privilege and uplift black trans folk, especially black trans women who continue to be disproportionately impacted by trans antagonistic violence. We build a space that affirms black women and is free from sexism, misogyny, and environments in which men are centered. We practice empathy. We engage comrades with the intent to learn about and connect with their contexts. We make our spaces family-friendly and enable parents to fully participate with their children. We dismantle the patriarchal practice that requires mothers to work double shifts so that they can mother in private even as they participate in public justice work. We disrupt the Western-prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages, in quotes, that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. We foster a queer-affirming network. When we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking, or rather, the belief that all in the world are heterosexual unless she, he, or they disclose otherwise. We cultivate an intergenerational and communal network free from ageism. We believe that all people, regardless of age, show up with the capacity to lead and learn. We embody and practice justice, liberation, and peace in our engagements with one another. There's a lot to unpack there. There's a lot of buzzwords. But that heavy emphasis on communalism, this, I, on this emphasis on disruption of Western prescribed structures, this insistence on the uplifting of trans persons. Saying Black Lives Matter does not mean that you ascribe to this ideology. Again, obviously. However, there is an organization who pushes all of this and expects you, when you say Black Lives Matter, to subscribe wholesale to this. And this is part of the problem with critical theory. It uses common language in uncommon ways, and when you use the common language, it expects and even demands of you the acceptance of the uncommon usage. And so when you say, I reject racism, then they can say, oh, so you support these things that in your mind are totally unrelated. And if you say no, well, then you're actually a racist. And so that, that's just something that's worth bearing in mind. Um, as a tangent to that, just briefly, um, a lot of times when 
if you're a person who sees someone use Black Lives Matter, maybe the hashtag or uh, maybe they'll just state it online in some way. Um, and you, your mind immediately jumps to that particular organization because it is it is something that might be in your mind here in Oklahoma City. They've they've made a little bit of noise over the past few weeks uh, by and we've mentioned this once on the podcast. Uh, by laying some demands at the feet of the mayor and the uh, and the police chief of Oklahoma City, um, some some of the demands, by and large, are, are rather unreasonable. Uh, but but anyway, uh, if if you hear that or if you see that online on social media, uh, and and uh, and you're you're concerned that oh well they're they're promoting that organization. Just ask, like don't don't assume. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, well, and, and it seems a simple thing, Sam, uh, and and it should be a simple thing, but I I see a lot of individuals publicly put down the hashtag, if you will, publicly put down the statement because oh well they're a terrorist organization or something like that. Um, I the vast majority of the people, if you're listening to this. Uh, podcast, the vast majority of the people uh, who are using the hashtag Black Lives Matter um, are not in favor of that organization. I I, I can tell you that up front uh, because very few people, not going to say everyone, but very few people, um, you know, who, who are probably listening to this and are Facebook friends with people who are listening to this. Uh, would actually, uh, you know, be a part of that organization if invited, would actually want anything to do with that organization. Um, the vast majority of people who are using that hashtag, Black Lives Matter, mean it on its face. And they might even mean it on its face within the context of what it, of everything that's going on. But what they don't mean is that a particular organization is important. And so, I, you know, I realize that's a bit of a tangent, uh, but it, it, it's worth bringing up because I, you know, your your friends, your Facebook friends uh, are not supporting, uh, in your words or in their words, rather terrorists. Um, they're not supporting, you know, this very Marxist ideology. They're they're supporting the very important uh, and very true phrase that Black Lives Matter and a phrase that apparently we need to be reminded of given the current climate. Right, and that is important to understand because, again, lots of people are politically not as just deep in the tank as others. And so we end up, if we're not careful, making assumptions, well, they must know all these ins and outs. And honestly, lots of people don't. And it's not because they're stupid or incapable of grasping it. They'd be quite capable of grasping it. It's largely that they don't care. It's that they see a they see an African-American man or a black person generally wrongly killed, and that's their knee-jerk response to say, you know, this is wrong. And that's a, that's a good and right knee-jerk response. Like, if you see someone wrongly killed and your knee jerk isn't something's wrong here. That's a problem. So I, I 100% am for the benefit of the doubt and 
if you just have to know asking. Because one of the worst things to do is just to come in guns blazing on someone and end up getting it wrong. Um, you know, it, it's something uh, to, to briefly continue the tangent for a second. Um, I was listening or I was watching a discussion uh, that Anthony Bradley was having with uh, John Piper and Tim Keller uh, to prepare for today's podcast. Um, and one of the things, and, and I do want to talk about the spiritual aspect of this before we close. Uh, but for right now, one of the things, uh, that, uh, was asked is basically, you know, how do you make any progress with this discussion within churches, within the discussion of, you know, race relations and, uh, diversity within congregations and promoting diversity and that sort of thing. Uh, and, Piper pointed out, basically, you know, we're here and it is a more scholarly event that they were having this discussion. Um, you're here and we're having this very deep level discussion. And in reality, uh, most people at congregations uh, and to parallel here, most people on social media aren't, aren't at that level. Um, and it's not for uh, lack of intelligence or anything like that. It's just because they've simply not thought about it uh, the way that some of us have. Um, and so having the discussion at all at most congregations and having the honest discussion, be it online or uh, uh, within families or, or whatever it is, having the discussion at all is going to be progress uh, because at that point you're going from not having the discussion at all to simply introducing things. And he talked about that in light uh, specifically of Ephesians chapter two. Um, but you know, the, the idea is that uh, if, if we can at least learn to engage one another, uh, you know, instead of seeing a hashtag and going, well, they're, you know, you know they're problematic or they're anti-law enforcement or, or whatever this is, um, uh, ask them, you know, hey, why this? And, and you know, I, I'm speaking as someone who, understands for the most part why people are posting the hashtag uh why people are doing that um but there are people who genuinely don't get it uh and like you said it it would be better for those people uh to ask why something is being used than to simply make assumptions about the person using it uh that is uh thoroughly unbiblical i would argue that making uh negative assumptions uh about a person based off of what they uh, based off a hashtag that they post and immediately jumping to the wrong conclusion uh, is, is borderline satanic at that point. Um, you know, that you are assuming the very worst in people uh, based off of a three word phrase. I, I, I cannot imagine uh, being able to justify that biblically. Right. Now, granted, there are some hashtags that I feel it's it would be fair to make some assumptions about. Like, if you ended a tweet with, like, hashtag kill all white people or kill all Asian people or kill all black people, I, I, I would be pressed to make some assumptions about uh, what you were getting at, but 
Well, and, and and to even make to even make the parallel, sorry to interrupt, but no, you're to good. even make the parallel, you know, we we did have a culturally significant and a culturally defined one, if you will, uh, from maybe two years ago with hashtag shout your abortion. Um, right. Uh, I may have the specific hashtag wrong, but something to that effect where you had, I remember uh, this. you know, you had a bunch of women on Twitter uh, talking about their experience with uh, with having an abortion and, you know, a lot of pride being uh, instilled in something that I think both of us would be regard uh, would regard as being just terrible. Um, I, that might be fair in that case. Uh, but I, even with something like that, uh, like if it's someone you uh, if it's someone that you would otherwise uh, expect to be, uh, it, it, you know, expect to be someone you agree with. If it's someone, uh, frankly, if it's someone who is a Christian, uh, if it's someone who, you know, personally, and it surprises you that they would put that hashtag, um, it's still worth it to ask. Right. Um you know, if if uh, if a member of my congregation uh, started using the hashtag kill all white people, I would be concerned. Um, but I I think the first reaction, even in that extreme case, should be to reach out and actually have the conversation. Why, why are you posting this? Um, you know, and if they tell me. Well, I want to kill all white people. Okay, sure. Yeah, we we've got some correction uh, that needs to happen, and it needs to happen very fast. Uh, but you know, even if the benefit of the doubt isn't immediately uh, perceived, it, whatever benefit that could be, uh, I still think it's worth, at the very least, a- asking about it uh, rather than assuming the very worst um, from that particular, in this case, hashtag. Uh, in the future, it'll be a meme or a gif or whatever. So, um, are th- what I- any other problems about critical race theory sort of come to mind here for you? Uh, yes, and this one is going to be somewhat controversial. So uh, I'm just going to, I have steeled my soul for many nights for this. But my major problem with critical theory, especially critical race theory, is that it does not want to actually dismantle power structures. A great number of people do not actually want to see these issues dealt with. And here's what I mean when I say that. When when an African-American man, like when Philando Castile was shot dead in his car for telling a police officer, officer, it is my legal duty to tell you that I am a lawful, a concealed carrier, and I am carrying a pistol. And Geronimo Yanez, I believe his name, has shot him seven times, all while screaming at him with his hands on the wheel. People didn't ask, why on earth do we let cops just shoot people? Why do we give them that power to just decide, oh, it's game time, and shoot someone? They don't ask, why do these people have this power, and how do we reduce and scale back that power? Instead, they say things like, pass an anti-racist constitutional amendment. This is from Ibram X. Kendi. He's an author of, um, in particular, How to Be an Anti-Racist, and Samp from the Beginning, I believe is the title of another book of his. But his proposal 
to fix the original sin of racism, that's another major issue, is that it takes religious jargon and twists it. Americans should pass an anti-racist amendment to the Constitution that enshrines two guiding anti-racist principles. Racial inequity is evidence of racist policy, which isn't necessarily true, and the different racial groups are equal, which is true, at least broadly speaking. The amendment would make unconstitutional racial inequity over a certain threshold as well as racist ideas by public officials with racist ideas and public official clearly defined. It would establish and permanently fund the Department of Anti-Racism, the DOA, comprised of formerly trained experts on racism and no political appointees. The DOA would be responsible for pre-clearing all local, state, and federal public policies to ensure they won't yield racial inequity, monitor those policies, investigate private racist policies when racial inequity surfaces, excuse me, and monitor officials for expressions of racist ideas. The DOA would be empowered with disciplinary tools to wield over and against policymakers and public officials who do not voluntarily change their racist policies and ideas. This was posted on uh, Politico uh, under their inequality section. Here is the thing. People like Ibram do not want these structures dismantled. They want their turn at the wheel. That's the problem. That was the problem in Soviet Russia, in, in Maoist China, in Cambodia. It was not, we need to work for equality. We need to work towards fixing fundamental problems. It was, you've had your fun, now's my turn. It is a politic of revenge and resentment. It is not, I want to be equal with you. It is, I want my turn to be over and above you. And that fundamentally is the problem. That is why I am fundamentally opposed to critical theory and critical race theory. Because it is, it's rooted in resentment and a desire for revenge against people who have not necessarily wronged you. It is the same line of thinking that killed over 100 million people in the 20th century. It is, I don't care if you've actually done anything wrong because you are a member of this class that I have declared my enemy, and I will get my revenge by any means necessary. Thankfully, critical theorists and critical race theorists today are, by and large, not violent people. But when you start talking about, well, we need a government agency with no, pub, with no political appointees, so no elected officials, so they're entrenched in the system and virtually impossible to remove at that point. When you start bringing the government in, Chris, what do you start bringing in with them? Oftentimes violence. Yes. Not just violence, the monopoly on violence. So uh, one of the things that highlights, though, is uh, when you look at those historical examples you brought up, is typically there's been uh, some situation that has been the, the catalyst, if you will, uh, for, for change. Um, and when I say what I'm about to say, I'm not saying this to accuse any of the specific people you've mentioned uh, or anyone in particular. Um, 
but when uh, when we consider the roots uh, of these issues, and you know, you mentioned uh, you mentioned the Philando Castile incident specifically. Um, at a certain point, um, the the rather benign, at least as far as being nonviolent, uh, approach that many modern day uh, uh, CRT adherents have. Um, starts to become less and less so um you know part of the reason uh that uh there is a negative connotation on the part of some with the idea of black lives matter is because of the association with the uh with the organization and that organization's association with some forms of violence at the very least uh looting and vandalism and things like that and eventually, if the root problems aren't dealt with, um, I'm not saying it should happen, but it wouldn't be surprising uh, to see something of, of an uprising uh, grounded in critical race theory um, or perhaps just critical theory more broadly uh, that, um, you know, and I'm not I'm not suggesting it would be successful. I'm not suggesting that it would be, uh, you know, that it, it would look exactly like any of the historical examples you mentioned. Right. Uh, but but the more the longer and longer uh, these problems uh, go uh, without being dealt with, um, the, the more and more restless uh people become uh and, and to some extent that's good because people should be restless when it comes to injustice uh, but if it's not channeled uh through the right outlook if it's not channeled uh through the white right way i almost oh i almost said white there and that would have been really bad um <laughs> uh but if uh, uh if it's not channeled in such a way uh that deals with the root problems um if it's not channeled in such a way that deals with the baseline problems it's going to lead to some disastrous results uh i gotta tell you sam um we're, we're coming up on an hour of recording or so here uh and we've we've barely touched on what i find to be the the biggest problem uh particularly as a christian with regard to critical race theory uh, because with a few exceptions, we've talked about it in light of of politics. Uh, with a few exceptions, we've talked about it uh, in light of public policy, in light of philosophy. Uh, but there's a spiritual element to this, too. Uh, and it's one that uh, some people hold to dearly, that some people hold to uh hold to the idea of critical race theory or at least critical theory being a part of scripture being the central part of scripture and thereby the central part of what jesus came to accomplish um and that is the idea that oppression isn't just a sin that oppression is the sin uh and that right. virtually all other sins aren't really sins that only oppression uh it is what is uh sinful and only oppression is really what needs to be dealt with uh jesus came of course to liberate us from oppression 
And that's all he came to do, apparently. Um, and thereby, uh, you know, we as Christians should be, uh, you know, critical theorists. Uh, we should be, some might say, social justice warriors because Jesus priest preached a uh, social justice gospel, if you will. And, you know, if we are not dedicating ourselves wholly uh, to social justice uh, to the end of oppression, uh, then we uh, are, you know, we're not truly being like Jesus because that's, that's what he came to do. Um, Sam, can you, can you, do you understand why that I, I find that to be extraordinarily problematic? I believe so, but I, I'd like to hear you explain it for once. So, all right. Uh, for once. Um, <laughs> so it is true uh, that oppression is a sin. We, we don't want to discount that at all. Absolutely. Oppression on the basis of anything is sinful. Um, you know, one of the, uh, one of the main things that's drawn out, uh, I think the clearest example, at least in the Old Testament, uh, is either in uh, some of the law that was given, especially in Leviticus, or uh, I think the clearest example is my, in my mind is in Isaiah chapter 1, uh, when the people fail, uh, when the people of Israel fail, uh, it is at least in part because they have marginalized people, because they have oppressed people, um, you know, at, at various different people, uh, foreigners, those who are struggling, what, whatever it might be. There are people in Israel who are oppressed, and uh, that is at least part of the reason that God executes judgment on them. Um, that they are willing to offer sacrifices. Israel is willing to offer sacrifices. They're willing to worship their God. They're willing to do all these different things, uh, but they are unwilling to care for their neighbor. Uh, and this is a problem that, that Israel struggles with throughout its history. There have to be laws uh, specifically, um, you know, targeting how Israelites should handle those who are foreigners who are sojourning in their land, in part because Israel almost definitely would have gotten it wrong time and time again without those laws. Um, Jesus spends so much time talking about uh, talking about how to treat those around you uh, and spends so much time uh, among the marginalized, if you will, uh, among sinners, among tax collectors who would have been the most marginalized of, of Jews, if you will, they were completely cut off from the rest of Jewish society by and large. Um, you know, and, and so that is absolutely a facet of Scripture. The idea uh, that Scripture doesn't say much in the way of oppression or that it's not a major theme in Scripture uh, it is is taking uh, the other extreme, if you will, of this discussion. Scripture absolutely deals uh, with oppression, deals with marginalization, uh, deals with, um, you know, pursuing justice. We, I think last week we referenced Micah 6, 8, um, you know, the, the idea that seeking justice uh, is a part of what we are called to do and who we are called to be as Christians. Um, or as, as faithful people of the Lord, uh, if you will, so we can encompass the, the Old Testament there too. But 
to reduce the gospel and to reduce Jesus' salvific work on the cross to simply ending oppression, because after all, oppression is the only sin, discounts virtually everything in Scripture that doesn't discuss oppression. Because, believe it or not, Sam, there are passages in Scripture that talk about things other than people oppressing other people. Um, oh, there are, isn't so. There are other sins mentioned. Um, and certainly, Jesus came to uh, Jesus came to end oppression, at least in a certain sense. Um, but that's the, the sense is that's not all he came here to do. Um, you know, <clears throat> and so it, it's what it does is it reduces the gospel down to an agenda. And that's ultimately, I think, why people adhere to it. But I'm not going to impute motive, although it's, it seems like a fairly easy connection. Um, it reduces the gospel down to uh, a strictly social justice gospel, uh, while it discounts everything uh, that Jesus says about any other sin, uh, while it discounts anything about uh what Jesus and his apostles and the inspired writers say about other sins, about responsibility, because that's a part of this too, is that the oppressed, uh, you know, those in the oppressed classes, uh, you can just sort of hand wave away their sins. You can hand wave away their responsibilities. And that's, that's an extreme position, but it is a position that some hold. Um, and that you can, uh, you know, you just interpret everything in light of this, social justice in light of the end of oppression. Uh, also, it discounts everything, and I mean absolutely everything, having to do uh, with the life beyond this one. That is, uh, uh, you know, an eternity spent either uh, in communion with our Savior uh, in, in heaven uh, or apart from him in, in hell. Uh, you have to basically completely discount uh, those ideas uh, to, to have this idea of a strictly social justice gospel stand. Right. And I would just add uh, two more criticisms that are, in my view, major ways in which they're incompatible. Firstly, is the question of epistemology. How do we know what we know? Uh, take, for instance, uh, this uh, statement from Union Seminary. This is from their Twitter. I was there when this dropped. Not at Union Seminary. I was on Twitter when this was posted. Uh, this is a sort of statement of faith that they put out on Twitter for some reason. Scripture. While divinely inspired, we deny the Bible is inerrant or infallible. It was written by men over centuries and thus reflects both God's truth and human sin and prejudice. We affirm that biblical scholarship and critical theory help us discern which message which messages are God's? Standpoint epistemology. This gets thrown around a bit, but there is this idea, and it's implicit to critical theory, and we've talked about it a bit, especially as far as lived experience goes, that, well, because of who I am, I cannot, I cannot speak truthfully or accurately on a subject, regardless of the evidence, regardless of whatever. 
or if you've ever heard someone say, well, as a, as a woman of color or as a mother of three, that person is, whether they intend or not, engaging in standpoint epistemology because they're front-loading who they are to provide credibility to what they're saying. Uh, which is why I always find that sort of thing particularly boring. But to actually get to my point, critical theory cannot have a Bible that is from God, that speaks authoritatively in everything it says. It has to have a Bible that it can pick and choose from. Because, for instance, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the judges of Israel are forbidden from showing partiality to people because they're poor. They can't be partial to the rich or to the poor. The critical theorist would say, no, deference needs to be given to the poor. But the Bible forbids that. Just as one example. Uh, critical theory, at least as it's applied today, says that you can't tell a person that their sexual identity is in some way or another out of touch with what is supposed to be. God says in the person of Jesus Christ, have you not read, God created them male and female and created them to be bound to one another. And so it has to have something that it can, that it has to stand over and can pick and choose from when it's convenient. Um, and secondly, the idea of moral asymmetry. Going back to the whole idea of white, of white people can't be victims of racism. Critical theory, especially critical race theory, applies moral deference and heightened moral privilege, we'll say, to minorities and the oppressed groups. It is assumed that they are in the right, or if they have done something wrong, there is always a defense for them. Whereas in the biblical text, there is none who is righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. It puts the oppressed classes in a special moral class that the oppressor is not allowed to pass moral judgment on. And even in some cases, actions that they do are considered moral, whereas if from the oppressor group, if they did them, they would be immoral. It creates different classes of people on the basis of their identities, which is something that the Bible forbids. It's extremely problematic. Um you know, there's, there's, like you said, there, there's not a way to synthesize this theory with uh, a divinely inspired, inerrant um, gospel, a divinely inspired, inerrant word of God. Um, I think for uh, many on the other extreme, you know, it's, it, it is worth noting that scripture has a lot to say about uh, oppression has a lot to say about writing injustices, and it doesn't do so strictly on a general level, although it does do that. You know, it does so on a, on a specific level. Isaiah chapter 1 talks about many different uh, aspects of marginalized, many uh, 
who we might call down on their luck in some way, many who have been oppressed by others um, or, or perhaps are just struggling. Kind of the point I'm getting at here is it, it doesn't say uh, it doesn't say why they're there. Um, it doesn't say why they're in the position they're in. Sometimes we make assumptions about people based off of what position they're in, whereas Isaiah doesn't do that. It just says help them. Sometimes uh, we say um, we say you know that people should pick themselves up by their bootstraps, right? You'll you'll hear that phrase. Our, our generation doesn't say that a lot, but uh, previous generations have said use that expression. And Martin Luther King Jr. Not that he's gospel by any stretch, although some would try and disagree with that. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, once said, "It's you know it's a cruel thing to tell uh, a bootless man to pick themselves up by them by their bootstraps." Um, you know, there's an understanding there that at a, on a certain level, the people of God are meant to help those in need. Stop asking questions about why they're in need and just help them. Um, but all that being said, uh, that basis is on the basis of need is on the basis of uh, who is is oppressed uh, and what you don't generally see in Scripture uh, it is that take place along different classifications uh, along uh, general identities. Uh, you know, it, it, there are some, of course, specific uh, uh, concessions, if you will, for foreigners because they're naturally going to be uh, at a disadvantage being away from uh, being away from their homeland, if you will. Uh, to, so take special care of them. Uh, but you don't you don't see that that justice administered on the basis of class. Um, you know, in, in modern day, uh, in, in modern day uh, talk, uh, in modern day discussion, um, you know, one of the things, one of the facets that gets overlooked with regard to critical race theory is that you're going to overlook some people if you're not careful. You're going to completely miss out on some people who are legitimately being oppressed or at least uh, could legitimately use the help, um, you know, be it by ranking others as needing it more simply based on their identity. Uh, you've got, uh, you're going to have, you know, poor white people, if you will, um, who could genuinely use some help. Uh, and you're going to uh, end up giving help, uh, to people in classes who don't necessarily need the help. Um, and I'm, I'm not saying that to make a racial point. I'm saying that just simply to say if you start to try and uh, have these classes drive your discussion on justice, rather than simply doing justice for the sake of doing justice, uh, you're going to run into some pretty serious problems. And on a spiritual level, um, you're going to uh, administer justice that isn't necessarily in need of administering because there's not been an injustice in one case, and you're going to overlook injustices in another case. Uh, once you start doing this on a general level, once you start doing this on a level uh, that acknowledges people purely by their identity rather than their actual lived experience, which those can and often are, uh, those can be and often are different from each other. Um, 
then you're you're you start to misapply justice in some way. Um, let alone the fact that that's not what the entirety of Scripture is about. It, it you know uh, that you know it, 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 it as we've already discussed. There's there's a lot of what Scripture focuses on. You just throw out the window uh, when you when you read this in as your dominant philosophy uh, when approaching spiritual matters. Um, and so it, it's it, it's something that is dangerous in public policy. It's something that's dangerous in public discussion, uh, but it is extraordinarily dangerous and extraordinary, extraordinarily, yeah, I'll say it again. You say it here. Ready? Can you say that word I was trying to say for me? Extraordinarily? Thank you. Heretical. There we go. It, it is when you pervert the purpose of what Jesus did, whether by reducing it down uh, and leaving out important facets about it or wholesale replacing it with something else. I'm not sure you can do something more heretical than that. I'm not sure that you can do something more heretical or subscribe to something more heretical than a belief that Jesus came down and did something other than what he actually did by going to the cross. Absolutely. Especially if one frames it as critical theorists often do, uh, which I usually find to be quite offensive. In fact, I always find it offensive when I see it. This idea that Jesus was a poor brown man that was brutally killed by empire. It strips him of his deity, of his glory, and most importantly, of his agency. When you say, well, Jesus was just a poor brown man that was killed by an empire. No, he's God the Son who created the world by speaking, who could have destroyed the entirety of the Roman army with his voice. He will not be degraded by that. That is the same God the Son of whom it is said, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in his wrath. It is the same God the Son who is described as a conquering king in Psalm 110. And even with stripping agency, they do the same to black people and to other minorities. It is you can't possibly improve yourself or your situation in life because you are being oppressed. But, more specifically to what we're talking about right now, it degrades God the Son in a way that I simply can't abide. Well, and, you know, with regard to that agency, that extends all the way back to him simply coming down to, to live as he did. I mean, Philippians chapter 2, Hebrews chapters 2 and 4 make that perfectly clear. That uh, And John chapter 1, for that matter. The, the, the idea that, you know, Jesus chose uh, to come down to earth, uh, that Jesus condescended. Uh, uh, he became like us in, in every respect, the Hebrews writer says. Um, he, he did that of his own accord. That it, it, it's something where whatever, uh, whatever oppression he experienced, whatever poverty he experienced, and, and we're not we're not discounting the poverty. I mean, it's very clear 
that Jesus is not exactly living a life of luxury while he's here on earth. I, I mean, Certainly. you know, we don't mean to discount that. Um, but that's something he willingly chose, you know, um, and that doesn't make any of his oppressors correct. It does. It certainly doesn't make the people who killed him correct. Um, but ultimately, that that's something that he he chose. Um, and so to reduce him uh, as this, and and the idea comes up even if the term doesn't specifically, as this sort of helpless savior. Um, it. it like you said, it stripped him of his agency, and his agency is the only reason he, he's down here to begin with. Um, you know, it, it, it wasn't by the, uh, it wasn't by any sort of compulsion, uh, human or otherwise. It, it was, you know, well, John three sixteen makes it clear it is his love for us. Um, you know, and so I, like I said, I, I cannot imagine anything more heretical. Uh, than, than reducing Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus' saving work on the cross, uh, to be anything less than that. Um, you know, at a certain point, uh, I, and I don't want to be accusatory, and, and so I'm not going to be specific in, in calling out anyone, um, but at a, as a certain point, uh, you got to realize if that's the Christianity to which you converted, just simply the idea that Jesus came down to be a social justice warrior. Um, and that is a Christianity to which some have converted. Let's be clear. Uh, if that's the Christianity to which you converted, um, I'm not sure that the label of Christian properly applies in those cases. Uh, well, um, I'll, I'll go ahead and say it doesn't apply yeah. because it's a specifically unchristian view of who Jesus is. And, and to be clear, we're we're not that that's not to discount uh, the idea of of oppression uh, and, and an end to oppression and an end to injustice um, as being a part of Jesus' teachings, a part of his ministry. Certainly, it was. Um, you know, we, pro, arguably the most well-known parable is that of the Good Samaritan, uh, which really discusses. Uh, you know, oppression uh, discusses uh, how to handle injustice. Uh, although we don't, we don't always talk about it in light of those things. I, I think uh, it, it is certainly appropriate to do so. Um, how we as individuals ought to handle those, you know, situations of injustice. Uh, again, extending help, um, but to reduce it simply to that. Uh, uh, Sam, I could go on and on and on uh, ranting about. Um, how unbiblical an approach it is, but it, it is it is deeply, deeply problematic. It, what, did Jesus promote uh, justice? Did he even promote social justice to a certain extent? Absolutely, yes. Um, but that's not all he was about. And to suggest that the gospel is strictly a social justice gospel, uh, well, that's that's really no gospel at all. And, and fundamentally, that's another area of discontinuity between the two ideologies. There is no redemption in critical theory and critical race theory. And, and 
the major proponents, the major writers will tell you as much that there is no chance for you to ever truly be a good white person or a white person that has divested yourself of your racism. It is no every day until you just kick over and die. You have to constantly think about how it is that you're being racist, even when you're not actually doing anything, even just sitting at home alone, not interacting with anyone. You have to sit there and think, well, how, how is race playing into this? Whereas in Christianity, there is a point at which Jesus said, it is finished. Critical theory does not have its testelestai. It does not have its... And when he made an atoning sacrifice for sin, he sat down. There is no... The record of debt against us has been nailed to the cross in critical theory. There is no point at which your sin is absolved because it is not about actually changing things. It is about reversing power roles. Whereas Christianity centers around the removal of that which keeps us from God. Sort of wrap this up. Um, you know, there's scripture has a lot to say about diversity. And, and we mentioned, uh, I mentioned Ephesians, specifically chapter two, but Ephesians earlier and in both Ephesians and Romans, there's a lot of discussion on uh, breaking down barriers that would otherwise separate God's people, um, especially racial barriers. And while the racial barriers are not quite the same uh, uh, in those times as they are today, um, there's enough similarities there to where those passages are absolutely pertinent to the discussion. Um, and the goal, it, it's worth noting, the goal of uh, discussing and ultimately breaking down those barriers and the goal of what Jesus did in breaking down those barriers isn't simply to have diversity for the sake of diversity. Um, it isn't simply to have uh, individuals and minority groups uh, represented. Um, there's 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 importance in that. I'm I'm not trying to discount any of those things. Um, you know the uh, uh, there's there's a reason uh, that the first we we would call them deacons of the church are all uh, Hellenistic Jews. Uh, that's because you had. Uh, some Hellenistic Jews who were uh, who were underrepresented, it seems. Um, there's a specific case there in Acts about uh, fill in my gaps here, if you will, Sam, but about uh, about widows of Hellenistic Jews specifically uh, not necessarily getting what they need, and so uh, the apostles ultimately uh, sign off on, if you will. Uh, these first deacons of the church to go out and tend specifically to their needs uh, right. because you know representation is important um you know it's uh, and and i think that's something that plagues us even today i shouldn't necessarily uh uh it, it's something we have to be very careful about uh how we go about finding that representation but representation is important um i don't mean to discount that diversity is important i don't mean to discount any of that but ultimately 
Jesus broke down those barriers so that uh, all can have access to him and to his family by extension, uh, but all can have access to him in such a way, uh, all can have a relationship with him that persists from this life into the next. Um, and anything less than that, any discussion uh, that reduces Jesus' work to anything less than that um, shortchanges what Jesus did and doesn't appreciate uh, the significance and the uniqueness of what he did. Um, because any, uh, I say anyone, obviously not anyone, given how much we struggle with it, but in theory, another person can come along and end oppression. Another person can come along and end, um, and end you know, racial segregation in specific contexts. But only Jesus could accomplish what he did. That, that's ultimately the thrust of the entire book of Hebrews and uh, the New Testament as a whole, really. But um, ultimately, only Jesus could do what he did. Uh, and so to reduce what he did to anything less than what he did reduces Jesus to being less than fill in the blank. Right. And, and just like I'll fill in the blank, it makes him less than God, the son incarnate and the savior of the world and specifically those who would believe in him. It's. Like I said, I could go on ranting. Um, I think I've I think I've said my piece as far as that's concerned. But, but like I said, it, it's it it is it is problematic on a political level and a philosoph philosophical level, and it is uh, among the most terrifying modern day heresies on a spiritual level. Um, you know, I I. I understand where the discussion is coming from, even from a spiritual perspective. I mean, the connections are not are not uh, difficult to see. You know, Scripture, as we said earlier, has plenty to say about oppression. Um, and perhaps those of us, uh, you know, who aren't in, uh, who don't currently experience oppression, um, would do well to pay closer attention to those passages. Um, but, uh, that, that's not, that's not everything the gospel is about. It's not even primarily what the gospel is about. And, uh, yeah. So Sam, you got anything else? Oh yeah. Just even just as a closing thing about, uh, those who don't live under oppression or those who don't have to deal with it. One, we should be grateful for that. That is a merciful providence that God chooses. And again, we can disagree or agree on the precise mechanics of how he does, but God directs the course of human history and directs the courses of our lives such that if we are not directly oppressed, that is a sweet and merciful providence of his. So we should be grateful for that, not necessarily be ashamed of it, and try to figure out how can I, in my place in life, work for justice that is meaningful, tangible, and ultimately biblical. You know, it, it's it's interesting. Um, the uh, when we talk about privilege, um, 
I'm going to talk about it at a slightly different angle. Uh, but with regard to privilege in scripture, sort of the clearest example I can think of is with, with yeah, excuse me, with regard to spiritual privilege, especially in the book of Romans. Um, Paul points out there basically that the Jews had every advantage. Um, you know, they had the oracles of God. Uh, they were God's people first, if you will. Um, that they have a, a head start, if you will, spiritually speaking. Um, and he doesn't make them, he doesn't try and make them feel ashamed of having any particular advantage over Gentile Christians, uh, at least historically. Now, ultimately, he'll say, you know, in Christ, those things aren't particularly relevant. Um, but he doesn't shame them uh, for having those uh for having those spiritual advantages, that rich spiritual heritage. And likewise, he doesn't coddle uh, Gentile Christians for not having that, for the absence of that. Um, uh, what he does is he shows uh, what, what each group brings to the table, um, what each group has to offer uh, with regard to their background and any advantages or disadvantages they might have had. Uh, and and this doesn't translate well into a political discussion, because in a political discussion, the idea of advantages and disadvantages almost always have to do with either different fears uh, that different communities have or uh, financial advantages. And that'll devolve into a discussion of reparations and and different things like that. And, and uh, we're, we're not going to explore the topic of reparations today, I don't think, uh, although I think our stances on that would be pretty clear. Well, um, uh, actually, I'll just very briefly say. I don't think anyone actually wants reparations, not in the actual sense of the term, because yeah. the idea with reparations is that a tangible amount is paid out or given in some form or another. Basically, the check is signed and cut and you agree, OK, this has satisfied my grievance and I'm not going to bring it up again. Uh... And people aren't going to do that. No, it's, it, you know, it, of course, people will take the money uh, if, if offered to them, but push, push for more. And that's not, that's not because they're any particular type of people. It's just because that's how people tend to operate in general. Uh, Absolutely. That's true. Yeah. That's true. That's true across demographics. Um, Absolutely. But, but looking, looking at this from a spiritual perspective, um, those advantages that, that privilege um, it's something that any any experience we bring to the table uh, spiritually, um, out with the exception of sin, which should always be shameful, uh, which should always be something we grieve. Uh, with that being the exception, um, you know, it, it's something whatever whatever uh, we bring to the table should be used constructively and not necessarily destroyed um what that means is uh on some level i'm going to have brothers and sisters in christ uh who have very different experiences from me and i don't get to discount those experiences just because i haven't experienced them or my family hasn't experienced them or i don't have any knowledge of it directly um if i've got you know i it, it's something where uh uh we referenced uh we briefly referenced last week, and at some point we need to get around to talking about that Christian Chronicle article uh, detailing 
one preacher who talked about crocodile tears and phony outrage over over the death of George Floyd and all the protests and whatnot that have come as a result. Uh, and I've you know I've seen people online, as I'm sure you have, who have tried to uh, discount this as being something of a hoax, not the murder itself, but the outrage, uh, or that you know they that they don't really have anything to fear. Uh, and I saw one response that I think is golden, uh, which is go tell the black members of your congregation that and see how they react. Yeah, you know, just go tell them, see see how they react. And this is in this particular case, I know that there were uh, there were black members in the congregation that they could tell. Um, and so those experiences are something I don't, I don't get to hand wave away those experiences, uh, but those experiences what they allow. Uh, what they allow for is is growth. I have a better understanding of what my brother or sister is going through, and they have a better understanding of either what I'm going through, or perhaps at the very least, why I don't understand. Um, you know that I I have a different view on it. Not that it's a right or wrong thing here, but that I have a different perspective on something, maybe out of ignorance uh, or just just because I've seen or uh, experienced different things. And that's true across demographics. It's not true, or it's not simply true just with regard to, uh, you know, racial profiling or anything like that. But uh, it, it's true with, with everything. And that's that's something, uh, if we can end on a more constructive note here, that, that's something that it, it is helpful. Rather than weaponizing my experience against someone else's and hand-waving away their experience because it's not my experience, it's not something I've had to deal with, um, using those experiences to come to a better understanding of what this is that we're actually all dealing with and how I might be able to help someone in their experience and they might be able to help me in mine. Uh, it, it, as far as how we're going to handle things on this earth is, is, is ultimately, um, you know, one of the most constructive things we can do, uh, in, in this situation the the uh, it is not a good thing uh, that uh, it is not a good thing obviously that George Floyd was murdered it is an awful terrible thing it is however a good thing uh, that we are having this discussion and that even uh, within the church we are having this discussion in a way that probably in American history we've never really had it before thank you for listening to the deep in the tank podcast We'll see you next time.